Hey everybody, it's Chris. If you're a sports fan like me, or you're just a fan of a great story, you gotta check out Press Box Access, a sports history podcast hosted by Todd Jones. Todd sits down with fellow sports writers who experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past 50 years, and they share some of the stories behind the stories, some of which they've only told to each other. What I personally love are the wild stories that you might not hear so much about on SportsCenter over the years. Like when Indiana-based sports journalist Bob Kravitz recounts the time Bobby Knight showed up naked to an office meeting with him and then banned him from the Hoosiers' locker room for the next three years because Bob wrote a story he didn't like. Or when Alexander Wolfe tells a story about going out on the town in Chicago with Dennis Rodman and Carmen Electra in the middle of a Bulls playoff series. Or when Dan Wetzel talks about what it was like to be in the media room when Temple basketball coach John Chaney stormed into UMass coach John Calipari's press conference after a game and threatened to kill him. These wild and fun stories, paired with stories about real sports greatness, you know, like the 1970s Steelers being the greatest NFL dynasty ever, or the legendary rivalry between Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, and even the impact of protests for social justice issues in sports, make Pressbox Access a show you should check out. Pressbox Access is part of the Evergreen Podcast family, and it's available all the places you get your pods, and you can also find Pressbox Access on YouTube. Go check it out. Midnight on August 1st of 1981, MTV hit the airwaves. After an astronaut planted an MTV flag on the moon, viewers were immediately greeted by the opening notes of the Buggles' prophetic anthem, Video Killed the Radio Star. Today, we are joined by music critic and on a related note co-host Chris Dallariva to discuss this historic song and if the pictures that came actually did break his heart. the show today we are here to talk about i don't know if matt's gonna agree but i think this might be one of the most important one hit wonders we've ever talked about on the show especially those of us who grew up in the mtv generation so welcome chris thanks for bringing such a great song to the show yeah thanks for uh thanks for having me Yeah, absolutely chris i'm gonna agree with you i i mean i'm gonna the very first thing that i'm gonna say right out the gate about this song is that the Buggles video killed the radio star exists in a very strange realm for me where this song feels simultaneously dated and timeless all at once. Mm-hmm. Like, like it is undeniably an 80s, so- like a song from the late seventies, early eighties and everything. But like, it still sounds great. Like it sounds cool and great and awesome simultaneously. <laughs> Trevor and Jeff were ahead of the curve on everything from the technology of recording to what the instrumentation and the, uh, you know, the new wave sound, the synths that were coming in new, they were using everything like that. Oh, what's it called? That computer they were using that like Kate Bush was using and Peter Gabriel. Uh, I've talked about it so many times, but anyway, they were ahead of the curve. That's probably why it sounds like, it sounds like something that could come out today and be cool, but yeah, it also sounds very of the time. Yeah, you're right. Now, Chris, this was this was not on somehow this was not on the long list that hmm. I sent people. So our guest, Chris, we're going to be bouncing between two Chris's all day. Yes, uh, <laughs> I'm already confused. <laughs> but Chris from TikTok, I'm on TikTok. <laughs> what led you to be like, you know what? Let's do video. Kill the radio star. Because I do want to chime on on this. This song barely even constitutes a hit when you look at the chart positioning, but I know that you, for many months now, have been doing a YouTube series where you've listened to every single number one song ever in Billboard history to talk about the strangest ones. So I, for a second, thought this hit number one and then saw, oh, this 
peaked out at 40, which is crazy. Yeah, I mean, you definitely, when you go through all the number one hits, you definitely see some weird things like, oh, well, how did this get to number one and this other song didn't? But you have to remember, it's just a weekly chart. And, you know, maybe maybe your song came out on a Wednesday and the most of your sales occurred like split into two weeks or something like that. Um, but Video Killer Radio Star to me is always a weird, uh, first of all, I, I agree. I love the song. I think, I think it's in a, in a way it's underrated, um, for how it still sounds futuristic and contemporary, but still very of its era. Mm -hmm. But the thing that always shocks me about it is like you said, it barely meets the criteria here and it's claim to fame is, was the first song to appear on MTV and that just seems to be a fact that everybody of a certain age knows. And I'm like, when did this become something that everybody knew? Because it's not like my father was watching MTV twelve oh one on the first air date. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and theoretically, like that also could be a weird footnote in an alternate universe where it's like, yeah, for like one year there was this channel that played music videos and the first video was video killed the radio star, like no one expected MTV to still be a channel 30 plus years later. That was an experiment almost destined to fail at its start. That's yeah, cer certainly. That's such a funny thing you brought up that we all know that we yeah. like, that would be the easiest trivia question at trivia night. What was the first video played on MTV? Why do we all know that? I feel like that's something I've known since I was, since I can remember, I've known that maybe it's because it's so meta it's so like exactly what on the, like you couldn't pick a more perfect, even if MTV started today, you might still go back and pick this song. This song wasn't even new. This song, was this song yeah. like a year or two old at this point? This, this was, yeah. yeah, this was almost three years old, I think around the time. Cause it was late August. It was August 81? 1st, 1981 when it launched. Wow. And this, and this peaked yeah. in December of 79. Wow. <laughs> so the music video existed for years as well or what do we know yeah. if this music video is specifically made to be the first music video on mtv no, nothing uh, was specifically made for that first day of mtv beyond maybe the vjs telling you what videos were coming up wow that's that's the other you know M, like you said mtv in many ways seems like it should have been destined to fail <laughs> because it's not like there were tons of music videos floating around in 1981 like there was really no consistent place to show them so it was mostly people were experimenting. live performances like they yeah. really were scraping yeah. the bottom of the barrel for stuff to show like, well that's there's this great book called i want my mtv it's like an oral history of mtv <laughs> got it right on the shelf oh nice and <laughs> They talk about how, you know, MTV really propelled new wave into the mainstream. And part of the reason they said they were playing all these new wave songs was because there were only like 200 videos in existence <laughs> and those just happened to have videos. Yep. So there was partially almost no choice. And, you know, well, people, those bands got a little lucky. And I'm sure the same thing with the Buggles. Well, that's the thing with the Buggles, right? Because the group, the group that I keep coming back to when I think, who do the Buggles remind me of? is Devo, right? And Devo was another group that was like in the mid 70s knew that what their quote unquote mission statement was as a band required a video element. So even before music videos existed, they had like nine videos because they were just shooting these weird avant-garde films to their music and then submitting them to like film festivals and stuff for more exposure. So I feel like the Buggles, which is like another 80s concept band <laughs> that like the visual component makes sense. Like I'm not sure how deep you guys dove into how they explained like the origins of the name and what the vision of the band in this song is. But yeah. when you watch the video, it captures kind of what they said the whole point of their project was in the first place. <laughs> hey, it's so crazy how prophetic how prophetic this this song is. How did they know that if they wrote yeah. this? Uh, did they have? Did someone clue them in? Like this thing called MTV is coming. It's coming in, <laughs> in three years from now. Or is it just that? Like like you said, Chris and Matt, what you're talking about too. That these bands who were so into the technology at the time, the recording technology, the new technology, the new technologies of sound, sounds that you could create that were beyond a guitar, bass, and drums. Um, 
that also part of that technology was video technology. It was yeah. being futuristic. And uh, I, I, I just can't believe what a perfect song this is and how prophetic. And even in the research of this, <laughs> I don't know if you guys saw this, but, you know, there's two guys, Trevor Horn was the singer and bassist, sick bassist, by the way. I, wa yeah. I watched a live performance where he's singing and playing bass and playing some pretty rhythms during this song that it is kind of tricky where you have to separate what you're playing with your hand from what you're singing. I was pretty impressed with what he was doing there. Um, and keyboardist Jeff Downs were the two members of the Buggles. But, you know, Trevor Horn said that the idea <laughs> about the Buggles, the concept of the Buggles, was at some future point, there'd be a record label that didn't have any artists, just a computer in the basement and some mad Vincent Price-like figure making the records. One of, this <laughs> one of the groups this computer would make would be the Buggles, which was obviously you know, making fun of like the Beatles and uh, <laughs> it would just be an inconsequential bunch of people with a hit song that the computer had written and the, and the group would never be seen. How prophetic is that? Dude, I feel like it is only this past month where I see people freaking out. I think it's funny. I think the AI stuff is funny. Nonstop every day of my life, I'm going on there and telling it to write a song, like write a song about Steve's baby and how Mike is jealous of Steve's baby. Like I, every day I go out there and I do, I have it write ridiculous songs and I'm always like, oh my God, this is amazing. So what I did guys is I went on there and I said, hey, chat GPT, write me a song about the Buggles and would you like to hear what it spit out at me? Oh, of I would love course. to hear. Yes. Verse one, are you guys ready for this? Because this is I'm ready. pretty wild. Because a lot of people were upset, by the way. I want to stress this. I've seen several people upset about AI. Like, yeah. even the big tech people were like, whoa, we better chill yeah. on this for a second. When, when Elon Musk is saying that, I think we just talked about When Elon Musk, of all people, is saying we better slow down on this, you know that that's pretty serious. So Yeah. I also want to point out before you read this that you have sent me multiple AI-generated <laughs> songs, and I am constantly like, the rhyme scheme is horrendous on these songs. Well, still, <laughs> all I wrote was, write me a song about the Buggles. Are you guys ready for this? I'm ready. <laughs> Verse 1. In 79, the Buggles had a vision of a world where machines made decisions. They said video killed the radio star, but little did we know, AI would go far. <laughs> Oh my, God. oh my God. Yeah. Okay. That's only the first verse. <laughs> Chorus. Now we see their prophecy come true as AI writes songs like it's nothing new. The Buggles knew what was in store and now we're seeing it more and more. Guys, I want to stress to you. All I said was write a song about the Buggles. <laughs> yeah. And you've, you may have been the person who's triggered the AI generators to revolt just by that simple AI request. is writing a song about AI. AI yeah. is doing what the Buggles did, okay? Yeah. Okay, verse two. Robots writing melodies and lyrics seems like something straight out of science fiction, but with each passing day, it becomes real as machines create what we used to feel. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Chat GPT, are you kidding me? That's a great line, actually. I got to give credit for Chat GPT. <laughs> if an actual musician had written that lyric, I would have been like, God damn, that's a creepy line. Yeah, but with each passing day, it becomes real as machines create what we used to feel. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, re repeats the chorus again about the prophecy coming true. The bridge. But even though machines can compose, there's something special about what humans know. We bring our emotions to the sound, and that's something that can never be found. So, Okay. Thanks, AI. We get the chorus one more time. <laughs> and then the outro is, so let's embrace this technology, but never forget our humanity. The Buggles saw this coming long ago, and now we're here letting AI's music flow. Wow. Okay. Is, are you guys kind of blown away by that? <laughs> I'm kinda, so, so I want to talk about a little bit more of, because of, you're, you're nailing it. There's all this stuff <laughs> that the Buggles were talking about that seemed so like, prophetic yeah. right like it's just like how the hell do they know this so i just got hung up on a line in the song which is put all the blame on vcr mm -hmm. right and that made me wonder well i know the vcrs existed in the 70s but like how popular were they exactly 
So I just looked up the history of VCR on Wikipedia real quick, and I'm scrolling, I'm scrolling to find the section called the mass market success. The industry didn't boom until the 80s when more customers bought a VCR. In 1982, only 10% of households owned a VCR. So in 1979, before even 10% of the population owned a VCR, the Buggles are like, you're going to put the blame on the VCR. Wow. So you're telling me that when this song came out, there's a good chance that 90-some percent of the people that heard the song were like, what does that line mean? What's a (laughs) VCR? What's that mean? That is pretty crazy. There's there's one thing I always so the song certainly does it sounds super futuristic, but I wonder if even at, at when they were composing this that it felt old fashioned because they were thinking by that point tele you know everyone had a television maybe they're more so thinking that you know the TV star the video star which has b- became associated with music videos was really just you know Elvis Presley on on the Ed Sullivan well, show and so here's what I'm gonna say. Looking at the lyrics, here's why I think this song still succeeds. It's a futuristic song, but it's a futuristic song about nostalgia. You know, like, it's like the opening line is like, I heard you on my wireless in 52. Like, it's about, like, mm. looking back and and reminiscing about the past, which is why I think it's easy for someone to be like, you know, oh, you could do, you know, Napster killed the video star. What You know, like, like there's always going to be... No matter what generation you're in, there's always going to be a slight nostalgia for what you grew up with when that was the norm, right? And I think that's why the song kind of falls into this timelessness because well, despite the fact that they completely called it, like they absolutely nailed everything in the lyrics, even if they completely missed the mark and this was just like a really abstract like sci-fi song that they had written about a future that never came to be at its core. It's still about reminiscing on listening to the radio in the fifties when that was all that music was about. Mm-hmm. I think, I think that's a, that's a very, very keen observation. And that's part of what I also, I also just love the production on the song. And there's like, there's like a piano outro. That's just absolutely beautiful. Yeah, You know, it's an earworm, but uh, they knew what they really knew what they were doing, which you can tell because both of them went to, on to have successful careers. You know, yes, they did. Trevor Horn and <laughs> Je- Jeff Downs were. I also find this funny with a lot of one-hit wonders. You see, they like they still keep making music, and some of them have a lot of success, but they're just sort of more behind-the-scenes people. Yeah, I mean, before we talk about the success post, the Buggles. While they were the Buggles. They joined Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. like that's one of the craziest things that I read today was like, oh, the last the last Yes album for like I think about four years, and then they reformed was the lead singer from the Buggles as the lead singer and the keyboard player from the Buggles as the keyboard player. And then that's how kind of the Buggles ended was because when Yes broke up, the keyboard player Dow's went on to do Asia with some of the other guys from Yes and kind of left Trevor to like make the second album by himself. But then he he found out he's a damn good producer and the credits for what this dude has produced is insane, including producing Owner of a Lonely Heart for Yes a couple years later when they reunited. <laughs> yeah. yeah, these guys are crazy good, man. I mean, take away <laughs> the, the production of... Video Killed the Radio Star is really cool, really futuristic for the time. I mean, even for now, it sounds like something that people would want to emulate. But I just think it's so cool that we are sitting here talking about Video Killed the Radio Star as I can't speak for Chris. I would assume so to a certain extent. Kind of depends on how old you are, Chris. But Matt and I know I know for sure are now in an era where we're looking back the way he was looking back at how video killed the radio. It's and now we're looking at MTV, the video thing that came in. That's yeah. dead. You know. Yeah, like, we should, Chris. Yeah. We should write a song called "Ridiculousness Killed the Video Star." Yeah, I sure <laughs> did. Oh my god. Oh. Teen Mom and Ridiculousness killed everything cool about MTV. That is that's sad. What's up, everyone? It's Joe, and I'm the host of That's Awesome with Joe, a podcast on the newly formed Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. I talk with tons of your favorite artists, managers, touring personnel, and more. 
Most of the time we talk about music, but lots of the time we end up talking about something completely unrelated. We laugh a lot. We do a lot of really stupid things, but also some things that are really informative and interesting. Basically, it's a podcast that I think you should listen to. Obviously, I'm biased because it's my podcast, but I think I might be into it if I wasn't the host. Check it out at SoundTalentMedia.com. I'm not going to lie here. I've become a factor fanatic lately. I'm a busy guy, and getting to eat restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat in two minutes has been amazing. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You have 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. I've been spreading the word to everyone I know, not just here on the podcast, but in person as well. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. You get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And the math doesn't lie. Factor is less expensive than takeout. Plus, considering every meal is dietitian approved, it's also nutritious and delicious. So what are you waiting for? Get started today by heading to factormeals.com slash one hit 50 and use the code one hit 50 to get 50% off. That's code one hit 50. The words one hit and the number 50 that is at factormeals.com slash one hit 50 to get 50% off. 921 Donkey Lane is a magical apartment complex that contains immense power but lacks intelligent inhabitants. What is happening? I'm getting texts. Why are we getting a lot of texts? People found out what we did. Oh, dividing Mike Myers into an infinite amount of tiny Mike Myers. Listen to 91 Donkey Lane for free on Spotify or your favorite podcasting app. More at 91donkeylane.com. See you there, you donkeys. It's cool to look at it from this perspective. And you're right. These dudes are beasts. And one more point I want to make about this song. My before I got off on a tangent there, is take away all the technology, all the cool synths and everything that are in this song. And Matt, you brought up how the presidency of the United States of America covered this song. They cover it just as a three-piece, you know? And the song is still great when you take away all of the bells and whistles and you just play it with a guitar, bass, and drums. The melodies are strong. The lyrics are strong. It's still an amazing song. Ben Folds also does awesome covers of it. He does it a little more true to form uh, of the original. I saw a live performance of him on New Year's Eve in Sydney in 2018 where he had, you know, obviously he's playing piano, but he had Moogs and he had some backup singers and stuff in Mm. it. That was great too. I mean, it's just... It's just a really, really good song. And maybe it got it, it got played out a little bit and sounded a little, I don't know. It was used in a lot of things. But when you just go back and listen to it again, I mean, it's a really awesome song. Well, and, and Chris, my co-host, I sent you what is actually the first recording of Video Killed the Radio Star um, by, uh, how do you pronounce this dude's name? Bruce, Bruce Willie or Woolley? was the co-writer of the song like if you look at video killed the radio star there's three writers on it Mm -hmm. and he's one of them and i think the story that i heard was he was originally in the buggles but then got offered a solo contract and his first album features him playing pretty much any song he co-wrote with the buggles as well because he has a writing credit on it and it's it's almost there you know what I mean? Like you listen to it and it's like, all right, this is a little bit punkier. It's a little bit faster, but it doesn't work. <laughs> like, you know, like it doesn't work without the synths. And like his version doesn't have like the, oh, oh's, oh, which are important. like, that's, a hook. that's super important to it. Like that's a hook all in itself in between yeah. every verse. Like it's those little pieces. And even when you read about the recording of this album, like, it took them so long to make this album because they were just experimenting. It was like, like Island Records cut them a check, and it was like, it, I, you, Chris, I feel like you've talked about this before, and I've definitely heard people say this on the Krista Makes a podcast. Like, when you get that check and you don't know if you're ever going to make a second album, like, 
you're going to take full advantage of what's put in front of you for that for that album and they were like let's let's figure this out let's make this sound the way that we we hear it inside of our heads when we're writing it Mm -hmm. and that's why i think even that album that album is awesome like the second single living in a plastic age yeah i actually think is a song i like a little bit more than video killed the radio star like video killed the radio star is the is the hit for a good reason. But Living in a Plastic Age is just like a fucking ripper of a track as well. Like, I'm like, this album was great to right. listen to. The second Buggles album. Now, this is after Jeff Downs had left. Left. This was basically Trevor by himself. Trevor. The Adventures in Modern Recordings. Adventures in Modern Recording. Once again, it's so... It's That's this, That's one of the singles from the album is, is a song called Adventures in Modern Recording. And that... I remember the name of the the thing now. It's called a Fairlight CMI. Peter Gabriel mm. used it. It's like yes. a, yeah, it's like a computer. And uh, yeah. yeah, Kate Bush used it. Frankie goes to Hollywood. I think um, the Eurythmics used it. I'm pretty sure. Uh, I think it was like an early. You could. It was like very early sampler and yeah. you know digital sound manipulator. Yeah, yeah. Very, and, and he used it. And I just think it's funny that the single was a song about modern recording technology <laughs> it's so like it's it's so funny it's like almost like a, a jingle for what you're doing i i kind of love that i think it's really funny i've never thought about i've read a, i've read songs and been part of songs about being in a band about being on tour never thought about writing a song about recording yeah <laughs> like that's well, funny that's awesome but i but I think that it makes sense at the same time because you look at someone like Trevor Horn, right? And yes, on this show, as as Chris has pointed out, like there are so many one-hit wonders that they turned their career into being a producer or they turned their career into being a songwriter. And, you know, we've talked about one of my favorites, Dan Wilson of Semisonic, like so many yep. massive hits that he he co-wrote and produced. But Trevor Horn, the only other person I could even mentally place him with is someone like Thomas Dobley where they are (laughs) so they're so ahead of like what sound technology is like of course they were going to become a producer they knew more about producing than the people who they were probably hiring to produce their records for them at a certain point and like like you look at like what he worked on. It's like Frankie goes to Hollywood, relax. Like he kind of created the sound that we attribute to the eighties, but then he's still making it like two of the songs that made my jaw drop. When I saw that he was the producer on them was seals kiss from a rose. Mm-hmm, and, yep. uh, Leanne rhymes can't fight the moonlight. Like, like he was still pumping out number one singles into the late nineties, early two thousands as a producer. And I think it's cause he, kind of created modern song production <laughs> doing the buggles now the the I, I think that's 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 such a good point the only other person while you were saying that i could think of and i i almost suggested this song when you asked me to come on here but i thought it was going to be too old is there was a number one hit in the um the late 50s called to know him is to love him and phil Spector was in the band he was the the band called the Teddy Bears. They only put out like a couple songs. Then Phil Spector goes on to be a producer and sort of defines the sound of the '60s. Yep. Sort of a similar story to Trevor Horn, except Phil Spector ends up going crazy. Yeah, yeah Trevor Trevor Horn hasn't <laughs> yeah, held anyone by gunpoint yet, but <laughs> yes, yet. I'm I'm fascinated by Phil Spector. By the way, I really I'm very familiar with his work, but I'm not. Like I'm like, is there a documentary about the the case or something? Because I know what happened, but I I've never like everyone's like he was crazy. He was always crazy. I'm like, well, I never saw footage of him in the studio. I never saw him like what he was like. I don't even know what he looks like. I know his, what he sounds like, and I know everything he he that he makes sounds incredible. I mean, he defined an entire generation of music, but for, for how much I know about his music, I don't know anything about him and even his case or anything. You know, I can tell you this much about Phil Spector. If you look at a picture of him, he looks like the type of person who would be a producer in the sixties and then go crazy because that's him. <laughs> oh <right>? my. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, okay. I had no idea that what he even looked like. That's so funny that you just showed a picture. Matt just showed a picture on here, by the way, he's 
pretty pretty wild looking. <laughs> Chris, you sent me that link to that performance they did. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I did more research to find out that that was like one of the first ever live performances from the Buggles. Like they weren't a live band. They were oh. a studio band. They didn't have the capabilities to do this stuff live in 79. And that performance, I believe it was a performance at Wembley Stadium, was put on in 2010 by Prince as a tribute to Trevor Horn's accomplishments as a producer. Wow. Whoa. Back up a second. Prince organized a concert in honor of Trevor Horn's career. Is that what you're telling me? That's what it sounds... Let me me triple check (laughs) this information. That sounds insane, but... If that's true, man, I didn't even know. Did he work with Prince? I see a list of people Trevor Horn worked with, and it is the following. Seal, Tina Turner, Paul McCartney, Tom Jones, Cher, Simple Minds, Bell and Sebastian, Tattoo, Pet Shop Boys, and Robbie Williams. That's what I knew, and that's impressive. Oh, so here's – sorry, sorry. Hold on a second. I'm an idiot. <laughs> It didn't sound as right. usual. <laughs> it was it was the prince's trust, as okay. in like oh my God. King Charles. <laughs> <laughs> I I thought that sounded weird. Uh, yeah, so that was in Wembley in two thousand four. That was their like basically their first performance live, and that was to celebrate Horn's career as a producer. Two thousand ten, they played their first actual concert, billed as the Lost Gig in Notting Hill in West London. But literally, they just announced this year that they will go on the first ever Buggles tour as the opening act for Seal. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's pretty incredible. And that's such a weird matchup. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be awesome if they were his backing band. I'm sure they could do it. You know, it makes sense. Maybe positive. Maybe that's what's going to happen. So that is that that is interesting. They didn't perform for decades. And I, I think I know they were like. There are songs that Queen would never perform live or the, well, Paul McCartney would never perform live post the Beatles, not because they didn't like them, but because it like truly was almost impossible mm-hmm. to recreate these sounds in a live setting. I feel like now we're at the point where, you know, if you use backing tracks and yeah. technology so much better that you could sort of pull off anything but yeah, live. Could you, you imagine you the Beatles in like 1970 trying to perform Tomorrow Never Knows live <laughs> with like backwards guitar solos and that like yeah. hypnotic strange drum beat over and over again and stuff it'd be so I, tough <laughs> no you know though you can have versions i know with my band we certain yeah. things we do in the studio that yeah you're not going to do live but you find a way to do it live uh i, I just think it's weird that why couldn't they why couldn't they <laughs> they, ha- they obviously had the synthesizers they had the the technology to record it why why couldn't you translate that? Why couldn't you bring some synths and some, you know, drum machine, whatever, and perform it? I, I don't understand well, why they the, couldn't. The other, the other reason could maybe be that they joined Yes so quickly well, after the album came out. That, like, well, that's what I was gonna say. I feel like some, like Tomorrow Never Knows by the Beatles is a great example. It's just like super weird. Probably would, they maybe they could have done it live if they were performing live, but it would have been really expensive. I don't hear Video Kill the Radio Star and think this cannot be pulled off live. <laughs> I don't either. That's what I. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that, it, that's strange to me, uh, Matt. <laughs> I gotta call you out. I was waiting for it so I could call you out. I did have Chat GPT write one more song. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> and as soon as you said Thomas Dobley, I went, "Okay, yeah. now's the time." <laughs> Every Chris, if you don't know Matt. Cannot get names right. He will mispronounce. <laughs> he will mispronounce something in every episode. So I had, I had a uh, Chat GPT write a song about Matt mispronouncing. Because <laughs> it, it goes a little something like this. Verse one. There's a guy on a podcast who just can't get it right. He's got the love for music, but his pronunciations aren't right. <laughs> Chorus. Matt Kelly. I like that Matt they rhymed Kelly. right with right. That was delightful, Chat GPT. <laughs> no. It, it, Oh, no, no, no. But his pronunciations are a fight. I, I are a fight. That. There we yeah. go. All right. Uh, the chorus is Matt Kelly, Matt Kelly, why can't you say it right? You butcher every band name, but we still love you all night. <laughs> I, love, I love that part. We still love you all, all night. night. All night. All night. <laughs> Come daybreak, though. Yeah. Fuck that kid. <laughs> <laughs> From Devo to the B-52s, he's got them all in a twist, but we still tune in every week because his love for music can't be missed. 
Go back to the chorus. The bridge is, we know it's not intentional. Just a little quirk in your style. But it brings us all together and makes us all smile. (laughs) Chorus one more time. The outro is, so keep on mispronouncing. It's all part of the show. Because in the end, it's the music that makes us all glow. (laughs) Beautiful. Yeah, I thought that was Um, pretty good. (laughs) When you said Thomas Dobley, I was like... Wait, have I been misreading no, his name? No, no, my, uh, Dolby. No, my Dolby. The easier <laughs> every, way. To, the easier way to say it. <laughs> the easier. Listen, I I, th- I forget who I was saying this to the other day, but I was like, my <laughs> mouth betrays me on a daily basis. <laughs> like, uh, all right, so let's talk about chart standing real quick because we did say this peaked at forty, which is crazy. Peaked at forty on the Hot 100 on December fifteenth, nineteen seventy nine. So the nowhere one near. Song- nowhere near when it debuted on mtv like no way before no. okay the number one song in america was sticks with babe okay um number two was uh still by the commodores three mm. was please don't go by casey and the sunshine band four was escape the pina colada song by rupert holmes yikes <laughs> and number five was send one your love by steve uh, stevie wonder now there's something that I found when I was doing this research that is the most Matt Kelly factoid that I had to read. While the Buggles peaked out at number 40 on the Hot 100, just two slots below it at that time was Kermit the Frog's Rainbow Connection at 42 wow. that eventually made it to 25 on the Billboard wow. Hot 100. So Gr- Kermit the Frog song. has outperformed the Buggles. <laughs> Also, pretty pretty weak top five. Yeah, uh, yeah. And this, I, Chris, I saw you grimace at uh, the Pina Colada that song. That went to number I, one, I a, by the way, Chris. At one point, that it, that was a number one song for like one. The or next two weeks. week, the, it, the next week, it, it, it yeah. unseated sticks. Yeah, <laughs> I have, I have a, I have a soft spot for for that. Have you guys ever done an episode on that? I'm sure Rupert Holmes has no other hits. Uh, <laughs> no, we haven't Not done yet. that one yet. Maybe we've next actually, time, Chris. You want to do that one next yeah. time you come on? <laughs> we've we've had a shockingly low count of yacht rock songs to okay. show up on this well, podcast. What was, what was it, Chris? You had a point about the song. You like it or something? You have a song. Oh spot? yeah, I just I have a. I mean, it. If you listen to the story in the song, yeah. it's absolutely insane. But I have a <laughs> I have a soft spot for the uh, the 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 drum. I love the drums on it. I think they had a they had two drummers. It just uh-huh. sounds like sort of cool. But yeah, no, I I understand the Pina Colada song hate though. I mean, it's pure cheese. You know, I, <laughs> I I have the soft spot because of which Chris Farley movie is it? There's a movie where there's about to be a bar fight, and Chris Farley goes to the to oh, the ju- it's Dirty Work. Dirty Work, yeah, he goes to the jukebox <laughs> to put on like some rock and song. Street Street Fighting Man by <laughs> yeah. by Rolling Stones. Yeah, and then instead <laughs> it plays a Pina Colada. I mean, that's funny. Uh, I I like that is funny. I like it in that context, but otherwise I'm like this is. This song's so bad. Uh, but I think, so, So, but as we've all noted, that's a pretty weak top five. But if that's what was tearing up the charts in 79, I feel like it also explains why Video Killed the Radio Star was stalling out at 40. Because, like, how would you even mentally relate to this music if, like, what... America is vibing too is the Pina Coladas song right well, now. They were just ahead of their time. I what yeah. I don't and I know that none of us probably know, unless you guys are gonna surprise me, but did it get a bump again because of the MTV thing? Also, another thing I don't know is so it was the first video, but did it did it become part of regular rotation for a while, or was it just the first video and that was it? My understanding is that it was literally the first video. It probably, I think, sort of tongue in cheek. It saw no immediate increase in popularity. Yeah. I, I think just years after the fact, it became this thing. Like, oh, this was the first video because MTV was this behemoth. But I don't. I wasn't able to find any information about like how that happened. Like, yeah. I feel like it just became folklore, even though it's true. Yeah. But well, they they did. Uh, at least I think they attempted to bookend the day with the Buggles. Um, Because the second to last song played in that first 24 hours is Living in the Plastic Age. Mm. But then there's one other song after it. So I'm like, I wonder if they just like mistimed it. And like, (laughs) it was like 1159 when the Hall & Oates song played next and became officially the last song played on the first day. But yeah, I don't think that for, for the most part, the first like, I would say probably the first six months of MTV, 
is quite unimpressive. Like, it's just like, we've got these videos and we've got these six VJs and we're trying our best out here. But it was like the fact that it was pretty unexpectedly successful immediately led to like it. So how do I word this? So, uh, I'm a huge fan of Troma Pictures. They're a very deep cut indie horror company from the 80s. And them and Full Moon Pictures both attribute the fact that they survived throughout the 80s because while every major Hollywood studio was afraid to put their movie out on VCR and on VHS tapes, they immediately were like, we're not even going to release it in the theaters. We're just going to get a really eye-catching box and we're going to put it in the video stores and people will have to rent it because if they go to rent a video, they're not going to have any options but what we have to, to offer. And I think that you can attribute the hair metal explosion in like 83, 84 to it being a genre that probably the record labels didn't want to promote that hard. But the bands were like, let's just shoot a video and get it on MTV. And they were like the the people owning that concept because it's really, I think that there, there was this element of, we talk about all the time, video views did not directly lead to single sales that are reflected on the billboard charts. Like, but it did directly reflect on album sales for sure. Like, mm-hmm. We talk about all the time. Nirvana had what three songs that ever made it onto like the Hot 100, but Nevermind was one of the best-selling albums of the time that it came out. So, I think that you got these like six months of people just releasing whatever top of the pops leftovers they could get their hands on. But like, I'm sure even in small ways, the Buggles album sold a little bit better than anyone anticipated after it aired, or like. Rod Stewart's old album started to sell again because they were showing all these old Rod Stewart videos that someone was like, oh, let's take one of our new bands that we can't get on the radio and make like a a video that shows them off and then go from there. Because this is still before the like million dollar videos that we got in the late 80s, early 90s, where you have like Puff Daddy spending like the cost of a feature film to make like a five minute music video. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know that. Same, same book I was talking about before, I Want My MTV. They talk about it in the early days when the labels didn't realize that videos were going to be such a force in making a hit that you had some, I don't know, sort of like avant-garde figures that were getting to make videos who, had it been big business from the beginning, would have never gotten a chance to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why some early videos are sort of experimental. And then by the time, you know, Michael Jackson breaks on MTV and people realize like, oh, this is, this is the thing. Then you start, then you start to get those big budget, uh, those big budget videos that we've, we've come to associate with the era. Do you remember the, uh, fish heads song? That's one of the first MTV memories I have is, do you guys know that song? Fish heads, the fish heads, fish heads, roly poly fish heads, heads. eat them up. Yum. That was like, Matt, wasn't that like a Dr. Demento thing or something? That was a Dr. Demento thing. and It's like two names is like the name of well, the group. Well, it's Barnes and Barnes. Oh, okay. One of the people is Bill Mummy, uh, who was like, he was like the little kid on Lost in Space and shit. Like he was like a yeah. child actor from the 50s who just like as a joke with his classmate recorded some silly songs after he was famous and Dr. Demento played them on... Well, his radio show. My my point <laughs> my point about that is that just like Chris was saying that you had these artists who would have never never had a chance on radio or something like that fishhead song was like a weird artsy fishheads fishheads eat them up fishheads fishheads fish fishheads eat them up yum with like fish in the video just like it looked like a college kids art project or something and it was on mtv so much that me as a little kid remembers it pretty interesting stuff the buggles in general how, how are we feeling about the buggles i i, I feel like this might be a, a a triple thunder on on the the buggles here i don't know i don't think we've we've said one bad thing about the buggles anybody got <laughs> anybody got any issue with the buggles <laughs> I don't. Their name kind of sucks, but that's about yeah, all yeah, I can the say. <laughs> I like the name, but I mean, yeah. I like I said, I liked almost every single song that I heard by this group when I was doing the deeper dive. Like, mm-hmm. I am a Buggles fan. I'm a Trevor Horn fan. 
I obviously love Asia, so like I'm, <laughs> I'm a fan of their keyboard player as well. But it's, I mean, this is right up there with any easy thunder call. Yeah, is the Buggles. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I I have not. I have not a. I wouldn't. I don't think I'm as big a Buggles fan as Matt is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> given that they only have two records. Yeah. But still, I mean, to me, this is it's it's a cultural touchstone. But it's it's worth the hype. It's it's a cool song. And as Matt was saying, I, I think an interesting piece for why it has stood the test of time beyond sort of being a prophecy is that there is that nostalgia element to it um, that always makes it feel contemporary, even though you could firmly place the production probably in the late 70s and early 80s. Simultaneously futuristic and nostalgic. That it, it, That's an accomplishment as we... What's the next thing? Like, we're going to look back on this era and be like, remember when we were on all those video sites and, and making our own content? I don't know what, but when we actually created our content and AI didn't, is that, I hope that's not, I hope that's I, not where we end up, but. Well, hopefully we don't end up there, but before we do, yeah. <laughs> I know that there's one person on this call who's been really doing a good job of making their own original content. Uh, so Chris, tell us a little bit about what you've been up to with TikTok podcasting and writing. Yeah, I started posting on TikTok. So uh, a few years ago, I started listening to every Billboard Hot 100 number one hit just for, I'm a musician too. So this was like, it was sort of educational. I would just like play along with the songs, but I work for a music streaming service called Audio Mac and I do like data analytics. So as I was listening to these songs, I would just collect some information about them, decided to start writing about it. And from there, I don't know, I just had this this huge data set about popular songs and I began posting on TikTok about them. And I, I run a little newsletter about, I say it's the intersection of music and data. Um, so that's my, the general bent of all the stuff I work on. It's, you know, people have theories about popular music. Can we actually see if see if those things hold up? Oh, to that's interesting. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but like. I know. Well, tell everybody where to find you before I ask you a question or two. Yes. Uh, on all social media, I'm at C. Dallariva Music. And my newsletter is called Can't Get Much Higher. It's on Substack. But yeah, that's the... I mean, listen, I, not you can't measure everything, of course. Right. But there are a lot of... In the internet age, we have a lot of super interesting um, data sources where... You know, we can better now pinpoint, say, where a hit started taking off first by seeing, oh, when, when were people beginning to mention it on Reddit and Twitter? Oh. And just this one example. But that's, you know, can we do do the things that we believe about music hold up to, I say, statistical muster? But really, like, can you back it up with with any, any evidence is, is sort of the... The angle that I try to take. I wanted to ask you, like, have you, yeah, through, you've been, you've listened to all these number one songs. Has there been anything that's really stuck out to you as like a thread through a lot of them? Is there anything where you, did you have breakthroughs where you're like, whoa, like that, that you realized through your own research? Was there like, for example, like a certain tempo or a certain key or a certain style of song or, or a lyrical so you know anything like that that you've you've noticed yeah i mean there are there are definitely dramatic changes that occur over the decades what one thing you just said keys for decades a very popular key change is just like in the last chorus going up a half step or a yeah. whole step that basically never happens anymore um and you see you see some of the stuff there there are it, rather than intro, like a through line through you know sixty years of music, there are I, I say more so there are certain trends that were very popular for a long time and then right. no longer stick around. That's one of them. The one thing I do find interesting, if I were to pick one thing that's consistent, is that often having a good song is is not good enough. You a lot of songs back to the '60s are associated with something else. You know, they're in a movie, they're in a play in the MTV era. They're associated with videos. Now these days, it's you know you have a, a TikTok dance associated with your song. So that's one of like the if there is one thread that comes to the top of my head is that having a number one hit is definitely not just about 
how great your song is and it it certainly helps if the song is connected to another piece of media ah. um yeah. Interesting. Well, you, well, you yeah, also, I mean, we got to shout out that you're also new to the world of podcasting uh, with a past guest. Yes. <laughs> yeah, my, my John Franklin, my cousin, we decided to start a podcast recently called On a Related Note. It's sort of like a, I call it a pop culture game show um, where the guest sort of has to solve a puzzle that we, we set up for them. So <laughs> Love that. We're, we're do, we just dropped the first episode. Uh, you should be able to get it where you know wherever you get your podcast, and we're gonna do one, two episodes a month. Um, so we should have some new ones coming coming soon. We're excited about it. It was it's been a lot of fun making a couple episodes so far. So that's a new a new endeavor, sort of on a slightly different path. Hell yeah, man! Nice. That's great. I'm excited to hear your podcast. I love playing along, man. Yeah, you, get, you put a game out there. I'm gonna play along, especially if it's music related, <laughs> and I can I can add some more uh, music trivia to this to my bank above my shoulders. I think that's nice. And uh, Hey man, it's been awesome having you on here. This has been really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to, I'm glad we all love this song. Yeah. yeah that's, that's <laughs> it, it's great. It is always awkward when the person who picked it loves it. And Chris and I are very <laughs> indifferent to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, what are you going to do? You can't, you can't please them all, but this is a great song. It's classic and um, I love it. Thunder. One Hit Thunder is hosted by Chris Lefalios of the band's Punchline Pack and Another Cheetah and produced by Matt Kelly of Geekscape.net. Underneath me, you're hearing No Stopping Us off the Punchline album Thrilled. Visit punchline.com for merch, tour dates, and news. We're on Patreon now. Become a patron and get bonus content, early episodes, and a chance to vote on future episodes at patreon.com backslash OHT podcast. Do you want to start a podcast? Contact Chris and myself at weknowpodcasting.com for how we can make your show sound as professional as possible. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app. And tune in next week for even more One Hit Thunder. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are the Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from NoFX, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media.